Hey, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Alex Bernardo, host of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. In this episode, I've asked Alex about some specific things libertarians believe and what are some helpful resources for people who may be interested to hear more about this political and economic philosophy. I'm glad for Alex's willingness to talk so candidly with me about this topic. And although I don't expect anyone to agree with everything we say, I do hope you find something worthwhile and thought-provoking. As always, thank you so much for tuning in today. We have uh, we have spoken at length about uh, a lot of the philosophical underpinnings, and you've you've talked uh, you've talked in detail um, with some of the economic issues of libertarianism. Alex, let me ask you. Um, maybe let's hit let's hit uh, three things. Uh, Perfect. Not not super quickly because th- these are huge topics. But I, I'm I'm curious to know sort of your take on these. And then after that, we can talk about maybe some entry-level resources that you'd recommend yeah. for someone that's interested in libertarianism. First thing I wanted to ask you about is some thing – well, the things I want to ask you about now are some things that are libertarians are known for saying, sort of libertarian slogans. Um, you know, libertarians like to say things like, taxation is theft. Yes. You just mentioned – you just described earlier in, in somewhat graphic detail about you know these men who – these men with guns who – was it Larry Sharp? He was running for libertarian governor of New York a couple of years ago. I saw him on Joe Rogan, um, I think. And he said, you know, we send men with guns to either take your stuff or put you in a cage if you don't do. Or, yeah. <laughs> like that's that's a very unflattering way to put it, but uh, not wholly inappropriately. Um, libertarians say taxation is theft. How is it theft? And aren't taxes the price we pay for living in a civilized society? <laughs> Both very good questions. So for your audience, I'm not sure if there are any hardcore um, anarchists in your audience. I'm going to assume that there's not. So let's just go ahead and <laughs> let's just go ahead and take not. the classically liberal anarchist state. We need a minimum government that at a minimum provides defense and then maybe roads and some other things like that. Okay. So very, very minimum, right? Yeah. So we'll yeah, work yeah, with yeah. we'll, we'll yeah. work fair. under the assumption that a very small amount of taxation is necessary. But then I want to look at that philosophically, kind of like I said before. Okay. So we have this belief that because we live in a democratic democratic society, quote unquote, which we, you, I mean, you know, we don't really live in a democratic society and the United States wasn't really set up along the Athenian lines of democracy. It was designed to be more of a republic and there were all kinds of checks and balances and yeah, all yeah. of those kind of things. You don't have to get into the, the history of that, but we know that mm-hmm. it's, it's not a pure democracy, but because we live in a society where we vote, if an elected official decides to raise taxes, that somehow legitimizes that decision. So I think philosophically, the problem with this is let's step back from the government's role in that and take a look at, let's, let's pretend that, um, uh, like you live on a you live on a cul-de-sac, you live on a street, and there are ten families that live on your street. And one of those families sees that there's a homeless man that is living on another street, and he wants to give that homeless man money so that he doesn't live on the street anymore. So would it be appropriate for that one person to get a gun and go to everybody's house and point a gun at them and tell them, "Give me money because we are going to go over and we are going to give this man that is homeless money, and we are going to help him get off the street." Now, again, morally, you might want to help that man out, but would that be morally appropriate. Of course, it would not be. Well, then the retort might be, well, okay, so uh, what would happen if, you know, five of uh, the or what would happen if six of the 10 houses on the street all voted? 
that that man needs money. But the four other houses didn't vote for that, and they don't want to give that man money because they think he might be a criminal or some sort of other degenerate. It would then be appropriate for the six houses to all get their guns and go and force the other four houses to give them money to implement mm -hmm. their vision of this man's future. It wouldn't be, right? And we all know that that doesn't work. Like You should never point a gun at your neighbor's uh, face and ask them to give you money, even if you think that what you are using that money for is noble. And I think yeah. that a lot of people don't realize that that is, that is essentially the way that taxation works in the United States, especially. And if you think about all of the, and I know that you know you, you probably have a lot of conservative listeners who are going to agree with me on this. A lot of our government programs are very, very large. And the programs that we are paying taxes to fund have nothing to do with defending or protecting our natural rights in any way. So we wind up yeah. giving all of this money over to the government and we don't have our natural rights uh, in any way protected. They're just using it for their kinds of programs. And as you said before, we have a massive federal bureaucracy. It costs a lot of money to maintain that federal bureaucracy. And so a lot of money that might actually go into making the economy more productive, allowing people to build businesses, allowing Christians to generously give to their church or take care mm -hmm. of those that are in need in their community, it's all wasted by these people that don't use it for any sort of productive mechanism. And I think that we have a much more dynamic economy and we have much more opportunities in terms of providing uh, goods and services and utilizing resources that actually benefit people's lives if we're allowed to keep as much of that money as possible. Yeah. Now, I know that there's like a conservative argument and a, a, a progressive argument. So the progressives are going to come in and say, okay, uh, well, there are all these poor people in the United States and we need to have a giant welfare state to help them. Okay, we'll take that for granted. But you have to understand that 50% of the money that the government takes from you in taxes every year is being used to bomb innocent brown children in countries halfway across the world. So mm, yeah, this yeah. tax, th these tax dollars go to this warfare state. And so can, then you have conservatives on the other side that will say, yeah, well, we need a military to protect our borders from any sort of outside invaders. But then half of the tax dollars that the federal government is taking from you are going to fund these welfare systems that are actually hurting the very people that they were intended to help. So again, it goes back to that law that intentions don't determine outcomes. And a lot mm -hmm. of the times these, these taxes are raised under the assumption, or at least the, the propaganda that's put out by the politicians that lobby for these tax raises are uh, made in a way that suggests that they will benefit society when in reality they do nothing of the sort. And they just wind up enriching politicians and corporations that are in bed with the politicians. And they don't actually wind up helping the people that they were designed to help or doing the tasks that they were designed to do. Um, and so you don't have to yeah. go all the way and say that there are no taxes. I definitely lean more in that direction. Now, I do think that there are a lot of really great libertarian arguments for privatizing almost every aspect of society. You don't even have to go that far to realize that our government is wasting a lot of our money, regardless yeah. of whether you are a progressive or mm -hmm. a conservative. And at the end of the day, I think that you should still at least want our tax system to be as efficient as possible. And I think that we should all yeah. be able to agree that just giving more and more money indiscriminately to politicians is not going to make our tax system more efficient. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at, uh, at kind of a, a very basic level, um, yeah, it is taxation is the, rem the forcible removal of uh, you, uh, of your property from you. And again, like I, I know a lot of Christians who are really, really anti about the hyper individualism that many Americans, particularly many American Christians, would uh, would at least uh, say that they uh, say that they espouse. the 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 thing, though, is that if like if if we're coming down to like all right, my stuff, right, like my money, my, my paycheck, or whatever, I, I think a Christian should be able to make an argument that. They, guided by the Holy Spirit, know better how to direct 
their resources or maybe like even even in discussing that kind of thing in community with other other knowledgeable and, and wise uh, Christians that they should know better where to direct their resources and money than you know government like you said that is either um you know that is either you know bombing children in the middle east or that is um you know wastefully and and wantonly going into debt and things along those lines yeah for me i think it boils down to it's like well i just i know better what to do with my money than these folks was which uh, again you know is, is a point that you mentioned earlier that how how there's a an exceedingly strong argument to be made for charity working most effectively at a local level. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right, let me ask you about something else that uh, that libertarians uh, will that I, I think libertarians are known for, and I, this is one of the things that I think keeps me. Uh, it makes me the most antsy. It really does make me the most antsy. Um, drugs, drugs hurt people. So why do libertarians want drugs to be legal? That is, an, that is an excellent question, and I do want to play on one very popular libertarian stereotype. So uh, I think in the popular conception, there are a lot of people on the left that think that libertarians are just Republicans that like to smoke weed. Right? <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a very popular misconception uh, about libertarians. Um, yeah. So again, this goes back to the idea that intentions do not necessar necessarily determine outcomes. Okay. So uh, Ron Paul, one of the greatest liberty, he was a congressman from Texas, one of the greatest libertarian yeah. thinkers of our time. He was in a GOP uh, Republican primary debate because he was a registered Republican, even though he's a, a straight libertarian across right, the board yeah. philosophically. He was in a primary debate in 2011 in the run up to the 2012 election. He was a, he was presidential candidate, and he was asked this very question during the presidential primary debate. And what he said is, if they legalized heroin tomorrow, would you go out and start doing heroin? And the answer to that question is obviously no. Right. right so yeah. drug prohibition does not uh, inhibit normal people who have no desire to go out and seek to do those kinds of drugs because you're not going to go out and do those kinds of things anyway. So uh, th there, there's, there's, that, there's that portion of it um, that I want to place to one side. On the other side of this conversation, if you start with the non-aggression principle and the idea that you are an autonomous individual, then you have a right to put in your body whatever you want. You also have to bear the consequences for those bad decisions. Yeah. And so if you decide that you're going to do a hard drug like heroin or um, like uh, crystal meth or something like that. Fentanyl okay, these days, that's apparently yeah, all yeah, the rage. Or, or, yeah, or fentanyl, you have a right to do that, but you also are going to have to bear the responsibility of making that bad choice. Mm -hmm. um, and so by by making drugs illegal, there are a lot of there are a lot of again, unintended problems that result from that decision. The first unintended problem is that it creates a black market for these drugs. So yeah. instead of allowing people in a laboratory to do research on these drugs and see how they can be utilized effectively, if they can be utilized, getting good scientific data on the effects that these drugs have on people that you can then use to say, hey, this is not a good choice for your life. It creates a black market where there's not a lot of research and people are able to sell under the table and make a large profit yeah. on selling these illegal drugs. So you have that, the problem of it creating a black market. The other problem is that it criminalizes behavior that does not violate other people's civil rights. So if you're a drug addict, that's very, I know, I know, you know, I live in Northern Kentucky, which is, it's not far from Indiana, which was the epicenter of, you know, the opioid ep epidemic and then the, uh, the ensuing yeah. heroin epidemic. Yeah. Um, so if you uh, if you are a drug addict, you are not a, you're not a criminal for being a drug addict. Now you have a problem, and you might need to go and get help, but that doesn't make you a criminal. And so it doesn't do these people any good to lock them up in prison 
for using a drug, they need help that the system cannot give them in that capacity, right? Yeah. So there's that problem of it too. Like we shouldn't criminalize that behavior. And American prisons are full of people that are nonviolent drug offenders. They did nothing to harm anybody else other than take these intoxicating drugs, which harms themselves, but they were labeled criminals and they are in jail as a result of using these hard drugs. So that's another very important part of that as well. Mm -hmm. I also think that we live in ironically one of the most medicated societies in human history. So it's very ironic that since the 1970s yeah. uh, with Richard Nixon, we've been fighting this war against drugs, but we've also been allowing pharmaceutical companies to push more and more of their products out into the market. And the FDA has been behind them all along. And so we have all these people that are taking these, uh, the, you know, you think about like, like, um, like the drugs like Percocet that you use when you come off of a surgery. These drugs are both very expensive and very addictive, and they are approved by the FDA and they're regularly yeah. prescribed by doctors. But what happens is a lot of people get hooked on those drugs. And then when they run out of their supply, they're addicted. And then they wind up going out and having to find illicit drugs to fill in that void. I think the one that makes the least amount of sense to me is marijuana because marijuana is completely natural. And there are a lot of scientific, a lot of scientifically proven benefits that can come from usages of THC in limited capacities. I know that there are a lot of Christians that are very much against that. But sure. if you, yeah. if you, you, you think about it scientifically, you can have a drug like, um, like Percocet that's manufactured with uh, synthetic chemicals in a laboratory, very toxic, very addictive, or you mm -hmm. have a plant that uh, can provide some of the same um, medical benefits as that. I think that it would be much more effective for us to go the route of, 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 of using the plant instead. So yeah. I think that those are all problems that we have to take into consideration. And then there's a very good lesson from history with prohibition in mm -hmm. the early 20th century. So yep. we had the 18th, the, the Volstead Act, the 18th Amendment mm -hmm. that prohibited alcohol. And we saw that not only did that create uh, all of these black markets where people were getting alcohol that was laced and that had all kinds of toxins and things like that. And a lot of people died as a result of that, but it criminalized normal behavior. Uh, and then also those people that were very wealthy and well-connected could get all of the alcohol they wanted without any consequence to them. Yeah. And the people that were at the bottom couldn't. And so it creates all of these problems in our society that, that we, that we don't anticipate that they would cause. Yes, drugs are bad, but the best way of solving that problem is to educate people and to have strong communities where people that have experience can tell younger people that these are a bad idea and you should not do them and they will negatively uh, impact your health if you do that. Making them illegal doesn't seem to solve any of those problems. And in fact, it seems like it's actually perpetuated a lot of that drug use over time. Yeah, that uh, a lot of that sounds really reasonable, particularly the... Um the lesson from history on on just how how tragically bad uh prohibition was that uh and and how that you know goodness that that did end up creating all of these other avenues and things like that where people would still be able to get what they wanted to get anyway um but you know organized the rise of organized crime related to yes uh, to the uh, production and distribution and sale of alcohol yeah like that that all that all makes sense to me um, and, and even as a Christian too, I, I would argue that you know those things which would uh, which would alter one's state of consciousness uh, unduly that uh, that would follow that would fall under like you know prohibitions um, about against drunkenness. And so I would I would argue again for a Christian like a Christian should look at that and say you know like hey that that's that's a no for me, dog. Um, yeah. The thing that I that I struggle with to really fully embrace the reason why I've struggled to fully embrace, you know, a, a fully libertarian perspective on, on drugs is 
that you mentioned the opioid epidemic earlier. Um, you know, listeners of the show will know that uh, you know I I lived for I lived for six years in Central Kentucky, and uh, one of the things that our church did was adopt a little uh, a local elementary school there in the town where I lived. Um, we had a kind of a mentor mentee program. It wasn't evangelistic, right? You know, it, it was it was a public school, but it wasn't evangelistic. But it was to help some kids who uh, who their teachers indicated that they could use just some additional positive adult interaction and you know, positive reinforcement and things like that. And I was matched with a kid who uh, I think he was in fourth grade at the time. And so, you know, I got to um, you know, I, once a month. I would go and uh, and you know, like maybe twice a month, whatever. I would go and eat lunch with him. He would get his food. We would go and uh, and sit in the classroom, and super quiet. We'd play checkers. You know, not great social skills and so on. And 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 part of the reason why he was struggling was because I think one of the parents in the house, either either a mom or a dad or a stepdad or you know, somebody in in one of the houses that he was in in and out of was struggling with opioid addiction. And so I can see how the argument on for adults, the argument makes sense. You know, if as bad as it would be, if if you so desire to put this in your body and hurt yourself, I, I can see how it's reasonable from a legal standpoint to say, yeah, that makes sense. You are free to do so. All things are <laughs> All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial to you know borrow a principle from Paul. Right. However, the thing that makes me say, man, I want to pump the brakes just for a little bit is when you have those in the house, particularly minors, who suffer, if not physical harm, who suffer demonstrable psychological and emotional yeah. harm because yeah. of what the adults – have been able to do. And I think for me, and, and I, it, if all you want to say, Alex is, yeah, that sucks. And I don't know, or if you've got a killer answer for that, that's great. But that's, that's, I think the thing for me that makes me say, I want to pump the brakes on, you know, opening up the floodgates with everything. I do, I do like how, like the emphasis on you know, education and things like that. I mean, how many studies have been done on the effects of tobacco and alcohol right. on nursing mothers, uh, like right. particularly alcohol on nursing mothers, but you know, like tobacco in general and things like that. Like if, if the information campaign is as strong on everything else, then okay, maybe maybe we can begin to talk. But the issue with the kids in the household and in the parents and, and and how that can be affected that that I think is a thing for me that makes me want to pump the brakes on that. Yeah, no, I, no, I completely understand your concern, and I think that there there are two sides to the, the that that comment that you made right there, and I've experienced both of them being a, a teacher because we deal with a lot of this stuff in the classroom. We have a lot of students that come from families with those backgrounds and things like that. So on the one hand, if you use any substance at all, or even if you you're not using a substance, if you hit your kid or neglect your kid, then you're a criminal, and there should be consequences for that, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's yeah. just like, it's just like alcohol. Alcohol is legal, but if you get drunk and you beat your kid, you're a criminal, and you should be taken to, to jail or have you there should be some sort of consequence because you hit your child you hurt your yeah. child because of your ability to use substances and just because you know like with with alcohol it's not illegal but you can still use it and it has negative consequences on the flip side of that however though there are a lot of kids that are in families that are relatively stable but maybe dad gets pulled over and he's got a little cocaine in his car and then dad winds up in jail for five months that yeah. has a very negative impact on that family as well sure, and yeah. I, I i wonder i know that there are some statistics out there 
on this, but I wonder how many kids, well, I know because I've experienced it. I wonder how many kids have to grow up in homes where their parents are not there all the time because of a nonviolent drug offense. Like their, yeah. their parent was, was providing all their needs, working a job, their drug use did not impact their kids at all, yet they wind up in jail simply for possession. So I think there are two sides to that coin. And I think that the way you balance that out is that like with anything else, if the government is going to exist, it needs to protect natural rights. So if children are put in harm because of an adult's drug use and that, that, that adult should be treated like a criminal, but those people that want to use those drugs recreationally, if it doesn't impact their life, then they should be able to do so, even though I wouldn't recommend it because it's incredibly bad for your health and has other negative social consequences. Yeah. But I think we would all agree, even if you have a parent that might have some bad habits, it's better if that parent is supportive of their kid. It's better for that parent to be in the home than for that parent to not be in the home. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Uh, last thing I want to ask you, uh, you know, with some of these th specific things that libertarians are known for, um, and, and I'll be honest, uh, I imagine I imagine some people might become a little antsy now with this particular question because when I first pitched this question to you, uh, there was not uh, there was not the issue in uh, in Gaza as there is now. And so I like I I was not expecting us to talk so much or I, I didn't mean to set us up to where we could so easily talk about current events. Um, but, you know, here's the question. Bad people do bad things in other parts of the world. Why shouldn't the U.S. intervene? Yeah, well, I think if we go back to the original intention of the United States military, you have the Monroe Doctrine, where the United States is going to take care of anything that happens in our hemisphere, like that's our, like our borders are our problems, and our military exists to protect our borders. But ever since World War II, the United States emerged after World War II as the global superpower. Like every other every other uh, country had been burned to the ground because of the fighting in World yeah. War II, and so we had this we had this existential conflict between the Soviet Union, which was nowhere near the economic powerhouse to the United States, partly because of the impact of World War II and partly because communism doesn't work. And then you have the United States on the other side of that. And all throughout the 1950s, because we had this new doctrine, the Truman Doctrine, that was initiated by Truman after World War II of containment, where we have to go and make sure that the Soviet Union does not expand its influence to any other corner of the world. Therefore, we need to invest a lot of money in our military, and we always need to be ready to intervene in case the Soviets try to gain more territory. That was, that was the Truman Doctrine. All throughout the late 40s and early 50s, we built up what President Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, where we established this relationship between defense companies that built guns and bombs and tanks and all of those kinds mm -hmm. of things with the government, and they received a massive amount of taxpayer mon money under the assumption that we could go to war with the Soviet Union at any time. And so we've been living with the reality of that since the 1950s. And again, when President Eisenhower uh, was giving one of his final speeches of his presidency, he said, we've created this military-industrial complex, this relationship between the defense companies and the government. And if we don't do something to curve this back, we are going to be at a never-ending state of war. And guess what? Ever since the 1950s, the United States has been at war in faraway places that are of no strategic, um, that are of no, um, not strategic, but that are of no defensive interest in the mm -hmm. United States. Our military has been used not to defend our borders, but to expand like an empire our presence overseas and to try to dictate 
dictate and control the direction of the world economy. And I think that we can see that with Vietnam, like almost every American would admit that Vietnam was a giant failure. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the same thing with Korea. And then when we look at the more recent wars on terror, 9-11 in reality was a response to America's aggressive foreign policy in the Middle East. All throughout the 1980s, we had been in, in, like intimately involved in Middle Eastern politics. We had backed Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran. We had um, been creating these relationships with Saudi Arabia because we wanted access to the oil reserves in the Persian Gulf. And so the United States had made themselves so involved in Middle Eastern politics that we couldn't untangle ourselves from that. And so you have the you have the the um, you have Desert Storm, you know, the Gulf War and During the Gulf War, we kind of turned on Saddam Hussein and we kicked him out of Kuwait. And ever since the Gulf War throughout the 1990s, Americans wanted to go back in and reinvade Iraq. And what a lot of people don't understand or realize about what happened during the 1990s was that the United States imposed, because of the war in Kuwait with Iran or with Iraq, these massive sanctions on Iraq that wound up killing something like or led to the deaths of like 500,000 innocent people in Iraq. So women, children, starving to death because of all of these sanctions that were imposed upon them by the United States, which really had no business being involved in Middle Eastern politics to begin with. And in fact, our Secretary of State at the time, Madeleine Albright, got on 60 Minutes in uh, 1996, and you can look this up on YouTube. And she was asked once those statistics came out whether or not it was a good idea to impose these sanctions on Iraq, knowing that 500,000 people had probably died as a result of the medical care they didn't receive and the food they didn't get. And she says that we think it was worth it to do that. So if you're living in the Middle East and you're someone like Osama bin Laden, you're yeah. probably not going to like the fact that this faraway country is intimately involved in your politics. And in fact, Osama bin Laden released several statements through the end of the 1990 saying that he hated America's support for Israel. He hated the fact that the United States had military bases in Saudi Arabia, right near Mecca, the holiest city in all of Islam. And he hated what the Americans did to the Iraqi people during the embargoes in the 1990s. And then lo and behold, we have the terror attacks in 2001. And instead of the Bush administration saying, maybe we should actually listen to the grievances that they had and see why they attacked us. They said, no, they just attacked us because they're Muslims and they hate our freedoms. And then they use that as a pretext to launch this all-out war on the Middle East. We were entangled in that war for 20 years. And according to a recent study that was done by Brown University, um, about 900,000 people have been directly killed by American guns and bombs and drones, and probably three and a half million people have died as a result of having no access to medical care, to water, to food, all of the the necessities that you need to survive. So if you think about the U.S. war on terror, it cost us, it cost the Middle East four and a half million dead. And then you think 7,000 U.S. servicemen died in that war. 30,000 servicemen and women have come back and committed suicide since going to that war. And all for what? Like, we're still in a conflict in the Middle East. And so when it comes to non-interventionism, the United States has a horrible track record of deciding when our military should and should not be employed. And I would argue that a lot of the conflicts that are happening around the world today are the result of the responses that people have to America's imperialistic and aggressive foreign policy. And there are were a lot of people up until this recent um, bout of conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. There were a lot of people on the right that were coming around to that. They realized that the Iraq war was a mistake, that the war on terror was not a success, and that maybe we need to think about drawing back U.S. forces. I'm not sure where that's going to head now that there's been this recent outbreak of conflict around the world, but I think it's very important from a libertarian perspective to realize that like, our taxpayer dollars are being used to kill real human beings that had nothing to do with 9-11 and that were never a strategic threat to the United States whatsoever. And 
I think that as a church, really, it's this issue of war that should be the most concerning to us. I understand the need for, given the current configuration of nation states around the world, I understand the need for countries to have militaries to protect their borders, but that should be the purpose of the military. It's not to wage offensive wars um, uh, that are designed to uh, advance our influence around the world. It should be to protect our borders. And it's what's also interesting with the United States military involvement over the last 70 years is that we only seem to get involved in places where there, it brings us an economic advantage. So yes, we have the Persian Gulf in the Middle East where there's all this oil. There's constant conflict in Southeast Asia and in, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And we don't get involved in any of those conflicts because there's no economic interest either. And so I don't think that a lot of these military decisions are made on a defensive basis. And I think it's, it's almost impossible if you look at the history to see that that has been the case. Yeah, yeah. I um, <clears throat> you mentioned earlier, sort of the you mentioned earlier the non-aggression principle, and um, and particularly how, as we've talked, how much um, how difficult it is to justify uh, taxation because of how 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 it's uh, how it's taken you know, through the threat of force. Now, Christians particularly ought to be sensitive to the threat of force. And so when we when we start talking about, you know, other nations uh, you know, waging war with other nations and the U.S. getting involved uh, when when we're, we are not directly threatened, in, in, at least in any obvious way, um, it uh, it would it would definitely seem like that is from a from a it, Christians should look at that and say this this doesn't square up with how i see jesus talking about you know how we how we deal with others uh now admittedly right jesus didn't jesus didn't talk on a geopolitical level uh often talked on an on an individual or community level um you know paul didn't talk about a you know talk about a talk at a geopolitical level either um not to the extent that you know this conversation has been uh based on uh, but the, you know, the the sensitivity towards force is something that I I, I know I I have grown, uh, you know, a, a lot more sensitive to is uh, is the use of force and how Christians ought to um, ought to be ought to be very cautious when we when we come to come to that kind of thing. This is uh, that's that's one that I think my uh, that particular question I think my my audience might have some difficulty with. Uh, I'm I'm grateful. To uh, to be friends with many veterans, um, veterans who 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 are our age and uh, and went yeah. and and served. Um, I I know that they're, you know, I know that they they had the reasons like uh, like we've all had our reasons for for doing what we do. Um, but I I think particularly with like a lot of folks in Vietnam, uh, that era, those uh, th those those men were swept up in something that was. Um, that they didn't necessarily understand, or you know, maybe yeah. were, yeah. maybe were brought into something that was, that was bigger than them. Um, that that's that's a really ugly, uh, ugly issue. And I I, ad I admit that I'm, I, I find it tough to to speak on this because I I I just I know so many veterans who have um, who have come back and you know they they still struggle some with uh, you know with post-traumatic stress and uh, and all that because of 
because of these uh, these decisions that um you know as you put the u.s made in the 90s and yeah. you know then um you know different groups uh you know different groups have responded to so you know that's well, Go ahead. Good. Oh, yeah. No, I, I want to make the point, too, that this is this is not an anti-veteran case at all. Like, again, I believe that if you decide yeah, yeah, you're yeah. going to be a soldier, yeah. you're much braver than me and you're putting your life on the line. And I know that like a lot, a lot, you know, so many people sign up for the service with the best of intentions. It's not the soldiers because the soldiers don't decide when and where we go to war. They don't make any strategic decisions. It's the politicians and the generals that make all of those decisions for mm -hmm. them. And the politicians are the worst because they have no skin in the game whatsoever. Like they're not going to be on the front lines having to fight and uh, and die for, you know, what whatever decisions they make it they're going to send other people to do it for them and for me when i like I, I was skeptical of the united states's military presence before i really started researching it in the middle east but for me it was talking to a lot of my friends that have been over to the middle east a lot of military yeah. veterans and even in my local libertarian party uh county affiliate we have several members who are like marine veterans they served in iraq and afghanistan and they came back and they said this doesn't make any sense like we were over there and our friends were fighting and dying and it just doesn't seem like there was any sort of like overarching strategic objective like it doesn't seem yeah. like it's keeping us any safer and what really got me uh researching and thinking about this issue was hearing from veterans who went over there and gave everything that they had and then came back wondering what all of it was for and just hearing like the stories that they they went through and they were overseas and then also seeing on the other end, you know, you have these these veterans that are called to go and serve overseas by these politicians, and then they come back and they have real needs because of their experiences. And then they get the Veterans Administration, they get the VA where they're not given the treatment that they need, they don't have the support that they need. The military does not like very very little when they're out of the service to help them get back to regular civilian life. And so just seeing like the negative impact that it had on our troops, people like you said that are our age, some of the best yeah. and bravest people that I know, like that's that's unexcusable. And I think that we have to we we should be able to question the foundation of that to make sure that that doesn't happen again in the future. I know that there is uh, like, like a large part of the anti-war movement now is full of conservatives, many of them that are veterans that don't want the next generation to have to deal with the same problems that they dealt with. So it's not anti-veteran. This is about the very bad choices that politicians make that we have no control over. Yeah, I, I think that there's I think that there has uh, may, maybe maybe our generation and uh, oh goodness, uh, Gen Xers. I, I think millennials and Gen Xers have have started to do a a better job than uh, than maybe um, than maybe boomers did with uh, with treating veterans. Um, you know, the, the whole premise of the yeah. movie Rambo, right, is like yeah. here's a veteran who just wants to be left alone, and he gets harassed because he he was swept up in something that was bigger than him, and um, you know, and the, the franchise kind of took a turn there, <laughs> yeah, at some point. But like R Rambo First Blood is, you know, it is it, like, I mean, it, it, it's a kind of a heartbreaking story because it's a, a veteran who's like clearly kind of messed up, just kind of wants to be left alone to do his own thing. Um, you know, I think Gen Xers and, and millennials have seen that and, um, you know, seen that in real life, not just uh, not just with Rambo, but have seen that in real life. And to say, you know, e even if we, um, you know, even if we can debate you know the validity or the legitimacy of of the armed conflict or to the degree that it is or specifically where we go etc we can recognize that you know now that these folks have come back they're in need of some help yeah they're in need of help and uh you know especially a uh, uh, goodness uh, when when we pulled uh, when the US pulled out of Afghanistan uh, like a, a year or two ago 
um, a lot of the veterans here really struggled because they were asking those specific questions. Yeah. Why did we, why did we even go over there for if, you know, these, if, if all this is going to turn out the way that it did, we had a special prayer service at, at church uh, relatively soon after that happened to pray, to pray for peace, to pray for veterans who, um, who were like, who all that stuff was brought up again. And they were reliving all that hell again, and they were reliving all of that. Our, our folks here at church, in, in, in Corpus Christi, with military presence down here in Corpus, because uh, we've got Coast Guard, uh, Naval Air Station, we've got uh, Army Depot, we've got you know South Texas, we've got you know, flight training, flight schools down here and everything. We've got a lot of veterans. I, I was able to see the, the, the pain and the hurt. That a, a lot of these folks, uh, yeah. a lot of these folks experienced it from secondhand. You're like my my dad is a Vietnam veteran, and um, you know, from the earlier stages in Vietnam, when you know, maybe perspective on that was a little bit more positive than uh, than it was as it as it dragged on. Um, but anyway, that's uh, Alex. I, I appreciate your perspective there. It's you know, you, you are consistent, right? Like you are yeah. you are consistent there. But I think it's also a, a yeah, I know not every every libertarian is is going to land on this the way that uh, maybe you and I have, but right. I, I I think it's meaningful to to be able to to say that it the message isn't here. It, it's not anti-veteran. Yes, it's really calling to responsibility those who would send our sons and daughters to fight in wars that the the powerful would never step in into themselves yes you know? and, and i think and, that's an and important I, message it is and again i think that there there are some libertarians that are utopian and the fact that they believe that if we have free markets and we have all of the freedoms that we believe that we ought to have then then we'll just have world peace but we live in a fallen world and as a christian we know that that's not the case so i'm not a pacifist like i i, I do believe that there will always be people no matter what no matter how great our social and political arrangements are there will always be people that will threaten to harm other people <laughs> and i couldn't imagine a more a more equipped and noble group of people to do it than the military servicemen and women that I know. Like if there were people that were out there defending me, which you have to have in a fallen world, it would be my friends that have served in the military because I know that they have a moral compass and I know that they have the bravery and the ability to defend me if my rights were ever in uh, in question. My problem is I don't believe that we should send those people to an unnecessary death fighting wars for politicians. Yeah. We should use those people to defend us here at home. And, and I think that the people that join up and and fight in the military like so many of them do it for the right reasons and so many of them are the right people to be in there they're just put in an impossible position by idiot politicians that are only out to fight for their own personal gain yeah yeah alex as we wrap up here um give us maybe two or three entry-level resources i've got my uh, i've got my notebook here i'm going to write this down to make sure that i link to these in the description give us maybe two or three entry-level resources you'd recommend for someone who's interested in in learning a little bit more about libertarianism maybe even from a christian perspective or maybe just generally yeah, perfect. I mean, there are a lot of great books out there on on these issues, and I talk about them a lot on my show. So if you ever want to check out the show, I would be, you know, that'd be great, and you can get all the books there. I think if you're if you're listening to this and you're kind of on the left or you might have some more progressive tendencies, I would recommend going and reading Reason Magazine. Reason Magazine is kind of like a mainstream libertarian magazine, mm -hmm. and they deal with a lot of libertarian issues that are like that are a concern of people on the left. If you're on the right, I would go to the Mises Institute's website, Mises.org. They are and and they're about 
Austrian economics, which is libertarian economics. They're a great think tank based out of Alabama. And not only do they have a regular blog and they update news stories on a daily basis, they take a lot of the um, lectures and works from libertarian philosophers like Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, and they make those available for free on their website. So you can download all kinds of PDFs. There are a lot of great essays, a lot of great introduction into libertarian philosophy. That's Mises.org. Uh, I would highly recommend checking that out. Antiwar.com is run by Scott Horton. He's the greatest anti-war activist out there. He's a great libertarian, and they uh, they kind of collate news from all over the internet. So they have socialist sources and they have conservative sources, all sources that deal with foreign policy, anti war.com very important and then last but not least i would recommend checking out the libertarian christian institute that is the institute that hosts my podcast the protestant libertarian podcast we have a bunch of incredible shows on there from a bunch of different theological perspectives and people like me write articles uh you know we get a couple of new articles out there every month um and so i'd recommend checking out that if you want more libertarianism from a christian perspective yeah yeah alex has been an absolute delight man i really appreciate it um any anything else uh, before we wrap up no, I, I really appreciate your time, man. Your podcast is great. This this has to be one of the longest ones you've ever recorded, right? <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is, uh, but that's all right. I, I I enjoyed it. And as we got to those particular questions, those were things that I was like, I not just as a host wanting to interview a guest about, but those are the kinds of things that I personally want to ask about because as I continue on my you know, political journey, um, yeah, I specifically want to. Uh, Wanted to hear your thoughts on those kind of things because, like, I, I've gotten to know you over the last year. You know, trust that you're uh, you're going to give me at least an honest answer, and so uh, yeah. that uh, I'm glad we got to spend uh, quite a bit of time on those things as well. Yeah, and I will say one more thing to your listeners. These ideas are massive, and it took me a very long time to develop my thinking on these issues. And in a lot of ways, like my thinking is still developing on a lot of these these problems. And you know, there's only so much we can fit into an hour and a half long podcast, right? Like there are a lot of different ways I could have taken all of your questions. So if you're interested in following up this, or you disagree and you want clarification, you can follow me on Twitter at ProLibertyPod or email me at uh, theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. I'd be happy to answer all your questions, give you some resources, help you think through this if you got some, or if you just want to make some comments on what you heard today i'd be more than happy to engage because i think these ideas are really exciting and i want people to think about them because i think that they're very relevant for uh for us today yeah alex take care man we'll see you later hey i appreciate it kevin thanks bye-bye